Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay, uh, Rabosa, it's a... Uh... Later in the afternoon, Monday, and now that I did one before, I'm going to do a bio now, uh, which I undertook a week ago. Today's uh, talk is being sponsored um, by the Davidoviches in um, in Cleveland, uh, Rafi and Dina. Uh, let me read over here in memory of their father, Mark Messing, Rabbi Mark Messing. I knew very well here in Baltimore. Mordechai Herschel ben Shmuel David. Today is the Yardsay today. Rabbi Messing, a beloved teacher in Baltimore, was known and admired for his ability to convey the beauty of Yiddishkeit to students at Nair Israel High School and Yeshiva's Torah Chaim in Baltimore through his classes in English and in world history. For many years, students at both schools were given a solid curriculum in English and history in a way that honestly enhanced their education in those subjects and gave them a, with a solid foundation of Yerushalayim and the love of their Judaism. I would say that's true. He was not only a teacher, he was a rabbi, he loved Jewish history, and we can think of no better way to honor his memory than sponsoring a, <coughs> a class by Rabbi Katz. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark Mess, I knew quite well. Uh, as a wonderful person, unfortunately, he succumbed to illness. This is from <coughs> his daughter and son-in-law. He's a rabbi in in, um, in Cleveland uh, at the uh, Heights Jewish Center Synagogue. Right? I've never been in Cleveland in my life. What can I tell you? Uh, and since it's Rafi, it was a student my many years ago. He's more break. Uh, and so was Mark Messing. So I'm going to do somebody today uh, that, you know, in my associative memory, one thing led to another to talk about a person um, who you can't exactly call one of the Gedolim, was one of the fascinating figures, last 150 years, and that's Rabbi Maza from Moscow, or Yaakov, uh, Yeshaya, Yaakov and Yeshaya Maza, uh, who was a very interesting character. I've been doing some unusual types lately, like the Rabbi in in Florence, and Rabbi Bloch the other week <coughs> with the Alilas Dom, and that actually led me to think about this. Because <laughs> here we are in Pesach time, and for some reason this year I've been talking a lot about the blood libel, all the rest of it, uh, and I'm going to deal with somebody who is involved in the most famous of all the blood libels, I would say the last 100 years, though it's a very interesting person by himself, Rabbi Yaakov Maza. <coughs> now, um, this is somebody who is uh, a government rabbi, in Tsarist Russia, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, what we call the fin de siècle, the French term, which is the 20, 25 years prior to the First World War, when European culture had a particular you, and Jewish culture also had an unusual uh, um, character to it. In my opinion, this would be among the peak years of the uh, attractiveness of European civilization to Jews. From and not from. But also the beginnings of the Zionist movement, which is like a reaction to some degree to that. Uh, we're dealing with Tsarist Russia, the Russian Empire, which uh, the Jews all lived in in the 1800s. The Jews did not live in the Russian Empire before the 1800s or the late 1770s. The Russian Empire never let any Jews in 
I said this many times. The Jews lived in the Polish Empire, which was next door. And that's where the war is being fought by Putin now. The Jews lived in the Polish Empire, which included Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine. In the 1700s, the Russians took over all that and added it to Russia. <clears throat> and according to Putin, they don't have a right to break away from Russia. So he wants to take it back. But when that happened, all of a sudden, the Jews found themselves for the first time ever under the control of the Russian Empire, which if you want to be very technical, you can say 1772 to the First World War, for example. Okay? That's the Tsarist Empire. So, uh, and the board has changed a little bit here and there, but by the time you get to 1815, Congress of Vienna, without boring you with the details, Russia owed 90% at least of Poland and the Polish Empire. The thing is, the Russians are jerks, and the Tsars especially, and they didn't know what to do with all these Jews. They didn't want to let them into Russia proper, and so they ended up saying that you can only live in the Pale of Settlement, which means the Jews were only permitted <clears throat> to live in those territories of Poland, the Polish Empire, which Russia had annexed. But they can't move into Russia itself. Which is like saying you can live in a place in the Northeast, but you can't move anywhere else in the country. Or you can live, you know, in uh, in Florida, um, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and nowhere else. <clears throat> it's the same country, but you can't live there. And this is how it went. So it means that all the time that the Jews were part of the Russian Empire, they were illegally persecuted, you know, discriminated against. The law said, for a Christian it's this way, and for a Jew it's that way. And if a Jew converted, then the, then the law was okay. In other words, the law says you can't live here. But if you convert, you can live there. The law says you can't go to this and this college if you're Jewish. But if you convert, you can go. This was a big incentive to convert to Christianity, and many did. <clears throat> many did. And so when we talk about Russian Jewry, which is a phrase you hear all the time, it's a tricky term because the Jews never were allowed in Russia mamish. But until the communism took over. But the Russian government, as with like a Putin type way, tried to Russianize the Jews. You understand? Uh, since the Russian government was very religious Christian, they wanted to Russianize them to the point of converting them. But even if they didn't do that, they wanted to tear away their Jewish identity and to use simple English to make it easy for you, they wanted to convert somebody from being a a Ger Chosid into a you know a Russian Jewish intellectual dressing European eating treif and all the rest of it. Like that. Identifying in some degree or another with Russian and Russianism. <clears throat> I'll say it again. The goal of Putin, if I follow the news stories right, is to um, restore Ukrainian uh, in his mind Ukrainian uh, identity that the Ukrainians should feel that they're Russians. It's crazy, but, but that's, that seems to be his policy. And he'd like to take over the Ukraine in some way or another and change the, 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 the school books and the media and all the rest of it and brainwash everybody thinking that they're part of Russia. Um, hasn't worked yet, but who knows? <clears throat> so if you're Jewish, and that's what I'm concerned with over here, <clears throat> this was a heck of a time to appear. Now, what was the reaction of the Jews? <clears throat> I think they, mo let's put it this way, a split developed in the 1800s between the Frum and the Nafrum. Uh, the Frum said, we don't trust the, go the Russian government. Nothing they do is to be trusted. They're all liars from top to bottom. And everything they do is out to uh, A, messes over and, and, and B, convert us or, or er eradicate uh, Yiddishkeit 
both in the religious sense and in the national cultural sense. On the other hand, those Jews who were not from said, you know, went through different phases. <clears throat> and uh, this is what you call Haskalah, among other things. That now you can have a, a broader Judaism and a Jewish culture. It doesn't have to be Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. And in addition to cultivating a Jewish culture, we can also pick up the Russian culture. And so they cooperated with the Tsarist government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And without giving a whole 19th century history lesson, suffice it to say that the Jews and the Moscow in general were idiots and believed that tomorrow was going to be a better day. And if they, uh, what's the right word? If they Europeanize and if they Russianize, uh, you'll see that they will get civil rights. Now, today's perspective, we know that it wasn't going to happen, but the Imams believed in it. And um, as a result, they were against the Frum, who they considered benighted, backwards, uh, a turnoff, causing anti-Semitism, and so forth. Even though they knew the government was harsh and cruel, and none of the czars of Russia gave even the slightest bit of civil rights or things like that, even for the Russian people. So, uh, but, you know, they, they placed their hopes in becoming an equal and respected part of the Russian nation. So, what they dreamed of is what Putin has done. Let's go before this Ukrainian war. I think everybody knows Putin is real tight with Lubavitch. He's tight with other Jewish groups and so forth. And he's given them respect. It's the first time ever. Uh, they dreamed of this in the 19th century, but they never got it from the Russian government. The Russian government wanted them to keep trying to, uh, what's the right word, assimilate more and more and more and more, and more but never give them any kind of uh, positive reinforcement. So it was into this kind of world that our hero was born in the late 1850s. Uh, there were five Russian emperors in the 19th century, uh, three Alexes and two Nicholases. So this guy was born under Alex II, Alexander II, who was the most liberal of them, although he wasn't liberal at all. But compared to the other Mamzerim, his relative terms, he was liberal. I'll give you an example. His father, Nikolai I, started this policy of taking the little kids and putting them in the Russian army in Siberia and trying to force them to convert by torturing them in, in, in the boot camp. So Alexander II, you know, abolished that. So relative to his father, that was very merciful. But he himself was a cholera. And the Russians thought for a while that he might bring in liberalism, but it didn't happen. And he was eventually assassinated by the terrorists. The reason he had terrorism in Russia because in response to the uh, anal and, and a functional, dysfunctional political system. There's no way to get the political system to accommodate the change in any way, even if it's desired by the mass of the people, then you resort to terrorist violence. And Russia is the origin, I mean it, Russia is the origin of the violence. Now, um, so into this, our hero was born in in a family that was, uh, the, if I remember correctly, the father was a misnagin and the mother was from Chabad. So you always had shaykhs to all these things. In, uh, in Chabad land, in Mogilev, you know, in White Russia, in the Upper River and so forth. And uh, he was born and lived, again, grew up in the 1860s and 70s, which was the, the, the reign of Alexander II, in which it was the peak years in which liberal Russian Jews persuaded themselves that there is a future for them in Russia as Jews and as Russians, and to be, you know, uh, loyal to Russia, and Russia will reward them by treating them well, and also on the kind of business. And he really bought into it. 
At the same time, we're not talking about people who want to convert or want to give up their Jewish identity. On the contrary, there'd be the Haskalah. So people like this. It you know, don't be uh yeshiva guys who are anti-social and aren't really part of Russia. You know, uh, cultivate Jewish uh, scholarship, Ivrit, um, Tanakh, you know, Diktuk, uh, all that sort of thing, uh, novels, plays, and so forth, and it'll be ancillary and parallel to the Russian culture, and will be accepted as kind of a subculture within Russia. That didn't happen, but that's what they <clears throat> told themselves. And a fair, you know, he had relatives. Um, from relatives that said, you know, don't believe it, but he, he was young and idealistic. But he discovered, he said himself, he once was, uh, you know, in a, in a, he got a secular education and uh, he was near the Tsar when he was visiting, uh, I think, in, in the Crimea. And the long and the short, the Tsar said, oh, no damn Jews over here. That's good. Otherwise, the air would smell. Or some, some, some kind of anti-Semitic remark by that, in which this popped his balloon. Get it? Popped his bubble. He was living in illusion that things are going to get okay in Russia, and he saw over here who the Russians are. On the other hand, he had an excellent Russian education, and he went Viter to go to the uh, University of Moscow, which, if you know, is like the... Uh, I mean, he graduated from law school, University of Moscow. That's like Harvard Law. It's like going to Oxford and Cambridge. That's the elite school over there. It really is. <laughs> and so here's a person who, who totally knows the Russians, and saturated in Russian culture, because the 1800s and the early 1900s, I would say the greatest years of the Russian culture. All the famous Russians you heard of lived in that time, um, 1800s and 1900s. That's when Russia, which was this backward country, which was so behind, and every all of a sudden popped ahead of everybody in the 19th century with this brilliant, you know, culture. The the musicians, the the artists. The uh, writers, and, you know, Tchaikovsky and, uh, and Tolstoy and uh, Google, the whole, you know, Jagalov, Bakhtin, all these guys um, really became like leaders of thought in European culture. It's quite, it's quite interesting, right? It's quite interesting. And so, um, it's quite, it was a heck of a time to live. Now, I don't know where he picked up Limudi Kodesh. Maybe with his parents or uncles or something like that. I remember he grew up, you know, he lived in a town, the Malbim was there when he was there. So I think as a boy and as a young man, even when he learned his Limuri Chol, on the side he learned the Muri Kodesh. Uh, so he would be what we would call in the right wing of the Russian Haskalah. Now here's the thing. All these dreams about a Jewish future in Russia and a liberal Russia, and one day Russia will be like America, and the Jews have a grand old time, and they'll get real respect for being Jewish, and blah, 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 blew up in 1881 when a huge wave of pogroms swept the, the country. Uh, and you saw the Russians hate the Jews. They blamed the Jews for killing the Tsar, who was assassinated, as they said before, by terrorists. And the Russian government didn't do anything about it. And you see, they actually welcomed it. And it was pretty clear that if you lived in uh, Russia under the last two Tsars, Alexander III and Nicholas II, Boy, did they wish a Hitler would come along and kill everybody. They weren't going to do it necessarily, but they wish you could get rid of the Jewish problem just by killing them all, or at least converting them. Uh, this is when many of my listeners now, this is when your grandparents and, and great-grandparents, whatever, 
left Russia to move to America. This is the great wave of immigration into the U.S. from Eastern European Jewry. When you say Eastern European Jewry, you overwhelmingly meet those from the Russian Empire. So if you have relatives that moved out of Russia, or uh, what you mean is they moved out of Poland, out of uh, Ukraine, out of Lithuania, Latvia, out of uh, Belarus, and they came to America, to England, to, 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 to the British Commonwealth, uh, to South America, uh, you know, all over the world, because they're running out of Russia. This is when it happened. Um, now, the point is that this bared, in, to public view, a huge vein of anti-Semitism, big hatred of the Jews, smack in the middle of Russian uh, culture and people. And this was a shock to all these masculine and young Jewish students and others who thought that, you know, you, you, there's a path of the future to be accepted by Russia. And they didn't know what to do with it. So, you know, they were, and so instead of being idealistic dreamers about Russian equality or whatever, uh, they changed to other things. This is when Zionism started, this is when socialism started among the Jews, and communism was all the other isms and stuff like that. Or those who were smart just said, get the heck out of here and go to America. So it was a, a turbulent time. If our guy was born in 1858, that means he's, he's in his early 20s when the pogroms hit, and he's part of that young generation that became disillusioned with any notions of fitting into Russia. And he wasn't from in the sense of having a from hashkafa, and so he became a Zionist. Uh, first in the Chovet and then later the Herzl Zionism, thinking that there should be built up some kind of center in Eretz Yisrael that would be mashpi in a positive way on the Jews in diaspora, specifically in Russia. Um, so here's a representative of the young generation of Jews coming up who don't want to be from exactly. Some want to be traditional, some want to be less traditional. He would be the ones that would be more traditional. Now, as I said before, he had a very good college degree. And as a result, uh, when his early 30s, I, don't, I forget what he did when he was in his 20s and finished college. In his early 30s, he got the job to be the Rav Mitam Hamemshola in Moscow. I think you know, Moscow today is the capital of Russia, but at that time it was St. Petersburg was the capital, but still, Moscow was like the main city. That's Russia, Russia, Russia. Okay? Um... The I said before, Jews were not allowed to live in Russia. The Russian Jews were not allowed to live in Russia. There were some exceptions, because there always are. That'd be for rich people, well-connected. If you bribe somebody the right way, the whole Russia ran on bribery, you know. <clears throat> There's a famous word from the, from the Chavitz Chaim when he lived under the Tsars. It says, In the Tocha, you'll be subject to Goy Az what do you mean, That means you don't understand the language. Question is, so you learn the language. Whoever the Jews are, they picked up the language. And the Chavetz Chaim said, it's Russians, because they say one thing and they mean another. They say, show me your passport, and really what they mean is give me a bribe of 10 rubles, you see. So, you know, that's who you're dealing with over there at that time. On the other hand, at the same time, there was a liberal element in Russia. There were some noble Russian goyim, there were, who really did dream of a future democratic Russia, who did not like the anti-Semitism against the Jews, who wanted a better situation, but they were not the ones in charge. They were like few, you understand? And this would be more educated types, 
uh, your, your writers and things like that. But there were also plenty of writers and educated types who were bissing up or bissing out to submitting. This is why it was a very interesting period in in the history. Um, the Russian people themselves aren't so bad, but the but the, uh, the government and the anti-Semitic circles, they say, if you give the Jews civil rights, they'll own the whole country. It'll be like uh, Lakewood and Jackson. They'll just buy everything, you see, if we have to keep them down. That was the era in which we're talking about. Now, there were no civil rights. The police ran everything, and they could do whatever they want to you. Now, having said all that... He became the rabbi of Moscow. That's in Russia. How does that work? This was a kehillah of Jews who were exceptional. Each one of them had to have special permission to live in Moscow. Most of them were richy riches. Because they were successful in business, they did a lot of contracts with the government, so they got special permission to live in, in Moscow. You also had a lot of ex-servicemen if you served in the Russian army for 30 years under Nikolai I, you could live in Moscow. There were a few other categories like that. It's not your typical Kahil at all. There were also those Jews, plenty of them, who lived in Moscow illegally. Because you had to have residence rights and you had to have your papers on you. If your papers not in order, the guards could beat you up and kick you out and send you to Siberia. Who knows what they could do? There's a whole genre of Jewish jokes from that Kufa, which reflect the weirdo fact that somebody could be a Russian Jew and not be allowed to live in Russia. You see? Um, how's it go? There are two cousins. One lives in Moscow and the other doesn't. The one, let's call them uh, Reuben and Shimon. Reuben lives in Moscow because Reuben is a, is a doctor or has some special permission. Shimon doesn't live there. He wants to visit him. Reuben said, don't come and visit me. Since you don't have the right to be here, the police can arrest you. They can kill you, send to Siberia, who knows? And Shimon says, I ain't scared of them. And he comes and he goes to the train station. Ruben goes to the train station. He sees Shimon get off the train. But meanwhile, a Russian guard comes, starts walking over to him, a policeman. Ruben says, now you're screwed. And Shimon said, nah, I'm not afraid of him. Ruben said like this, quick thinking. You stand here and don't move. Don't move. Just stand there. And Reuven, who has the right to live there, starts fleeing for his life, as if he's the guilty one. The Russian policeman starts chasing him, and they run for a couple of blocks until the Russian guy catches up with him. And then the Russian guy says, Reuven, ah, I caught you, you Jew. You probably are illegal, don't have the right to be here. Now you're going to get it. And Reuven says, well, I have the right to be here. And he pulls out his passport, which gives him the right to live in Russia. And the policeman is astonished. He says, if you have the right to live here, why'd you run away? I wasn't running away. Well, why were you running? My doctor told me I have to take a constitutional, you know, have to take for for health. I have to run every day. But you saw me running after you. Why didn't you stop? I thought you went to the same doctor. Now that's the joke. All which reflects the screwball situation of Jews living in the country and not allowed to live in the country. He became the rub of the Kehill over there, which means the government recognized him as a rabbi in Russia and again, I know I've mentioned in the past, you had a situation in which the Russian government wanted to control everything, control freaks. They did not like the old Kehillahs where the Jews kind of rule themselves. The Tsar wants to have everything. And one of the things he did was to try to appoint his own rabbis. Trouble is the Jewish community didn't want them, but the Tsar insisted that they take them. And so the result was you had, we go, Rav me Tom, me, Rav me Tom Hamadina, Rav me Tom Hamadina, 
which means that there were people who were officially recognized as rabbis by the government, and they were forced to rec the Jewish community was forced to recognize them as the official rabbi of the community by the government, but the community didn't hold to them. Um, they just did it because they were forced to. You might tell me, what's the purpose of an official rabbi? In Europe, the rabbis had certain jobs. They did the marriages and divorces. You cannot get legally married without one of these rabbis performing the marriage. And you might tell me, what's that going to mean, anything like that? And while I'll answer you, what it means is, you say you have Chuba Kedushin, the government doesn't recognize it as married with all the laws after with marriage and property rights and you know ownership and all the sorts of legal stuff that cover married couples. If you want to get recognized as married, it has to be married by an official rabbi. Just like it was a guy, you'd have to be married by an official priest. And so anybody who would get married had to go to the rabbi, go through some kind of stupid ceremony, even though really what they're giving Chuba Kedushin and Shul, you know, or someplace like that by a real rabbi. This is how it went. And it was like a silent war between the Jewish communities on the one hand for many years in the 19th century and the Russian government on the other. Every community of size had to, had to employ what they call an official rabbi. He kept the birth books and the death books. That's how you knew uh, who was born and not, and, and not. He was in charge of marrying divorces. I'll say it again. He was in charge even of divorces. <coughs> and uh, that's what life was like. Usually, the Jewish communities hated these guys, and it became a profession for losers. People who couldn't read Hebrew, people who were real jerks, and you went, but it's a job, you get a government salary. And so, uh, Shalom Aleichem, the writer, for example, wasn't a jerk, but he wasn't no uh, big person. He was a government rabbi for a while, Rabbi Tom. Kazanya Rabinus, they used to call it. The real rabbi on him were like off the books, you know what I mean? And they were uh, not officially supposed to be the rabbis. They were just everybody knew who it was. Even if it was kind of spectrum, was like that. It was just his official position was that of washer of uh, uh, of the salted meat or something. You know, they gave him a quote unquote a job. His official job designation was like working as a clerk or something like that in the uh, Star K. Really, 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 he was the rabbi of the community and obviously the post door. This is how crazy world ran in Russia. Um, there used to be a rabbi, a minor, minor, in uh, Moscow for many years. He wasn't a bad guy. I don't think he was a Talmud Chachamim. You didn't need to be. And his job is just to go and, uh, you know, uh, maybe give a speech here or there, but not even that. I know that he uh, persuaded Tolstoy to switch from being an anti-Semite to be pro-Jewish. So he was a good fellow in that regard. This has nothing to do with a Rav, Shilas, you know, Shiurim, it's nothing like that whatsoever. And this was Russia, my friends. This is how it went. So our hero, because he was, he must have some kind of a smich in some fashion, and I don't know from who, but he had what we would call a Harvard Law degree, so for the Russians, that made him a very good candidate. And they hoped that a rabbi who speaks Russian, has Russian education, will be much beyond the people to try to either convert, assimilate, or move closer to Russia, or something like that. But it's not what happened. So he was the rabbi for the last 20 years and more from around 1893 to 1914 and then to 1924 in Moscow in this very unusual community, which, as I said before, you didn't have the regular beggars and little this and that and the other. Most of the members were either middle or upper class because that's how they got special permission to live in Russia. Um, they had the Vysotsky family, for example, from the T, and his uh, gods and his son-in-law and all that. It's a whole big group. 
And these guys were, were highly unusual weirdos, these richy riches. They supported um, the Haskalah. They're the ones that bankrolled a lot of projects uh, for publishing Hebrew literature in the Haskalah spirit. Um, that's true. At the same time, they were also big supporters of like Telz Yeshiva, uh, Panavish Yeshiva, not Panavish, Telz Yeshiva, Slobodk Yeshiva, and places like that. If you actually take the trouble to read those bios of the Chavetz Chaim, you know, like the art school one from the, which was originally from the 1930s, Rabbi Yoshar, you see the Chavetz Chaim back in before the war used to go to Moscow all the time to raise, raise money, these richy rich families. And, you know, they live in big mansions and all the rest of otherwise they wouldn't be there. And these were the best of them because at least they had some side of Yiddishkeit in them. Other families were totally assimilated. You know, you, you, can, you can understand the picture. And um, the young, the younger generation was Mamash going off the derech, and Rabbi Maza, our hero, when he became the rabbi there, he worked very hard to build up the Yiddishkeit in several senses. I would say, now, now he was a, he, I, he, I, as far as I can tell, he was a Shem Shabbos. Um, he wasn't no from me, but he was, he was a Shem Shabbos. As far as I know, he kept kosher, and I mean, it's pretty clear. Um, but his main job as a Rav Mitam, because he wasn't the posek over there, they had some from guy to Paskin Childs. The main job for Rav Mitam was to be, number one, a good speaker for public occasions. Number two, with the Goyim, with the Russian government, with the Russian officials, with the Russian intelligentsia, the, you know, to, to help out the Jewish community. Because the police used to raid the community all the time and carry off anybody who didn't have a passport. And either send them back to the uh, Poland or somewhere, or send them in jail to Siberia it was very tough. Sometimes these people were raided and expelled from the city in the middle of the winter, which means they died walking out because they didn't have clothes to see them on a long journey. It's so many, many, many stories, right? And Rabbi Maza was, among other things, a big Zionist, Chovetzian, and then regular Zionist, which he interpreted as Jewish pride. And I can't tell you how important this was, because when you live in a country like Russia, you get the idea, the only Chashua, uh, Uma, is the Russians, and the Jews have no pride, they're just like a little group. And he said, no, we go back all the way, we're down in Nivchar, we have great contributions we made to civilization, and so forth and so on. And I would say he was pretty successful, and well, relatively, relatively, uh, in fighting the fight for Jewish pride and Jewish identity, which sometimes translate into Shmir's Mitzvahs, okay? Uh, so you're dealing with a time when Judaism itself was under constant intellectual attack. Uh, they had their share of pogroms, but I'm talking about the intellectual attack. And it was tough. Somebody had to be a Talmud Chacham on the one hand, an excellent writer in the Russian to make the case for Jewish pride. Obviously, the reason he wanted to be a Zionist was he must have seen there's no future really long-term in Russia, even though he lived and died there. And um, he was a good friend with Achadam and those type of guys who thought that you could possibly develop Israel into a spiritual center, which will, to, to use modern terminology, which will send out, um, you know, Alonim before Mincha on Friday, you know, spreading information about Judaism, Jewish culture, to communities in the diaspora. Um, it was a pretty dumb idea, but okay, you know, this was the general approach. And... Uh, he knew Russian perfectly, obviously, and the Russian officials gave him a certain respect 
because he had a degree from university, and he used whatever influence he had to help the Yidden. I'm talking about getting people out of the army when possible. I'm talking about um, getting, hopefully, people out of jail, or at least getting closer for when they're in jail, when they're raided by the police, um, trying to avert whatever Xeris he was capable of averting. And um, at the same time, you know, giving a good public speaker and advocating for Jewish causes, uh, especially with the Russian public. I, I can't tell you how important that stuff was. But he was up against an iron wall. The government, the czars, everything were super Sony Israel. Super duper. And it was really a tough, very tough environment. And what they wanted was that Rav Tom should be the spy of the government on the people. He didn't want to do that. And so he flipped it to try to use it as much as possible, whatever position he had, to to help the Jews uh, from the government. So it used to be a joke. I forget who said it, but Chaim Brisk or something. They say, you know, is uh, Rav Mitam. That's the Mitam means appointed by over here. So uh, just like with a little of an asterisk, you know, there's Tom Barech, Tom Bein Barech, Rech Bein Tom, Ein Rech Bein Tom. So he said Rabbanim is also, there's, you know, some have a Tom and a Reach, and some have a Reach and a Tom. Uh, you can understand what that means. And some have neither, and some have both. And people would say that, uh, you know, as Abdu Frum said this, as a Rabbi Tom goes, he's the best. <laughs> you understand? Because at least he's Yiddish, he tries to help the others. And he had understanding of the Frum perspective because he came from a Frum background. And he had Chabad roots as well. And, uh, you know, as it goes, you know, he's going he's the best of what you're going to get. Because the other guys who were, couldn't read Ivra, they were super anti-Frum, the Michal Shabbos, the Uchel Trefus, and all that. He wasn't like that. Okay? The most important aspect, I would say, of his job and service during these 20 years was trying to defend the Jews from the Russian junk. And the most famous, exa- and the most famous example of this was in the Bayless trial of 1911-1913 when they accused the guy, here we go again, of the Alil Esdam. They said, that in Kiev, by the way, look at that, in Kiev, and they said that the rabbi of Kiev, or the better yet, the Hasidim in Kiev, you know, uh, murdered somebody to get the blood to use for matzahs. In 1911, and the government really uh, went after this, the, the state prosecutor and the others, and they tried to a, blame the Jewish people, if not the Jewish people, at least the Hasidim. And it was a whole big mess, you know. Uh, and it was a cause celebrity in the newspapers. <clears throat> the, how should I put it, the victim, with, whose name was Mendel Bayless. That's a, the Jewish guy who was accused of doing this. It was just a little schnook, he was a nobody. He was arrested, they had a whole trial. The rich Jews paid for him to have a first-class lawyer. The number one Jewish lawyer in Russia was Oscar Grusenberg. Because he was Jewish, he wasn't from at all, zero. But he had enough Jewish pride. See, I'm talking about Jewish pride that he wouldn't convert. Because he wouldn't convert, he couldn't practice law. He could only practice in the court of cassation, meaning he could only be an appeals lawyer. Isn't that interesting? And a cassation means you have to prove to a higher court that the earlier verdict was unconstitutional. That's what it is. So you have to be a big you know, uh, hush of a guy, and even though the the stakes were the, were loaded against him, even though the system was loaded against him, 
He was such a brilliant lawyer that he rose to the top in his little niche. I remember my father told me, he grew up in Russia, you know, that they used to say, the judge would say like this, if Grusenberg is here, I know he's he's right. You know what I'm Because he's going to present the best arguments. Goyim, I mean, said that. And so Grusenberg said, I'm going to take the case as the lawyer for Bayless. And as he put it over here, we welcome this. The Jewish people is an old anvil. And many hammers have been hit on this anvil, and the hammers are broken, and the anvil is there. We're going to show the whole government for a bunch of liars. I said, you know, we're exposed the whole business and make it look stupid. He said those words. You know what I'm saying? And it was a call celebra. And the prosecution, of course, had to make the case, which they did, that the Jewish religion, or at least the Hasidim, do practice killing uh, Goyim and using the blood for matzahs and that sort of thing. They actually said that this is, you know, and they brought so-called experts. Like I told you last week or two weeks ago with Rowling and the other thing in Vienna. And these experts are supposed to know their stuff. And they'll testify, you know, and there was one of them. So the, the defense, by the way, got Russians, Russian professors and others who say, we know the Jewish religion. Jewish religion doesn't say this. And they would say, yeah, you only know the Talmudic Judaism. You don't know the Zohar Judaism, the Hasidim. We have extra doctrines, because who the heck knew the Zohar? And therefore, the prosecution could say, the Zohar tells you to do this. You know, or the Hasidus tells you to do this. Uh, and it was a real big mess. You know? Uh, the, 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 so, what was necessary was that someone should be able to give a full explanation for a Russian court. Because they had a jury that time. The, uh, Alexander II, the Tsar, had switched to a jury system, which was actually fair. And so you had a bunch of peasants, they were a jury, and you have to pr produce the evidence, and you know, they do like a real court. Unless you have the evidence, you can't find guilty. It can't just be, because you don't like the way the guy looks. Gotta be evidence. So show the evidence that the Jews do this, or the guy did this, in this particular case. And the long and the shorter it does, they said, Maza has to be the guy because he's Russian and he speaks Russian and he was in law school, all the rest of it, who can explain to these Geisha blockheads the basics, the ABCs of what Judaism really stands for, uh, even peasants can understand, and how far removed the Jewish religion in all of its aspects, Misnagdim, Hasidim, Sephardim, Ashkenaz, doesn't matter, from anything that has to do with the Elila's Dom. And he eventually testified, I think he had 10 hours or something like that, gave a long speech, haven't seen it, and when she explained what Judaism is, that's the first time these guys ever heard what Judaism is, as opposed to hearing it from an anti-Semitic newspaper. You get it? So he made an unbelievable Kiddush Hashem. That was his moment. That was his moment when he kicked these guys in the teeth, not by calling them liars, but by telling the truth, what what the Yiddish guy really is. And remember, he could do it in Russian, and he could do it in a high-toned uh, Russian, and all the rest of it, and he hit a home run. Everybody knows he hit a home run. Now, um, it's also true that they were able to expose the so-called experts on the other side <laughs> as as phonies. There was a guy, Pernitus, who was a Catholic priest in Lithuania, and he said he could read the Gemara, and, you know, he's expert in the Talmud, and Grusenberg said like this, I'm asking a question, you know, from the expert. In what century did Bubba Kama live? <laughs> the first century, second century. And the guy's like this, I can't remember all the historical details of all the rabbis, you know, and basically saying this, the jury will know Bubba Khan's name of a book. 
This guy doesn't even know the, the ABCs of nothing. He's a he's a phony. And he could prove that it Bubblecom is a book, not the name of a guy. So in other words, they exposed all these guys as phonies. Uh, but you know, the, it's so mushrush in the Gaisha mentality, especially in, in the Ukrainian mentality in, in, in Kiev, where all, the whole thing happened in Kiev. They said he killed a child in Kiev. The whole trial was held in Kiev. Malish where the board is now. And um Rabbi Maza in his memoirs, I want to talk about in a second, says that when he was appointed to to be the spokesman for Judaism, the chart cover Rebbe happened to be in the same spa. It's a long story. I think I've told it in the past. And he ended up being called in to see the chart cover Rebbe. And the Rebbe said something along the... You know, because the Rebbe's were all millionaires, so they could go to the fancy spas. I mean, that's how it was. So, um, and he said, don't say it was the Hasidim, not the Misnagim or something like that, because it's just a plot. He was afraid, since the guy wasn't Hasidic, she might go that route. And Rabbi Maza said, first of all, my mother was Hasidic, so I wouldn't do it. Second of all, um, you learn from Yaakov, went back for Pachim Ketanim, from here, from, you know, with the Sar Shalesov. From here, you see, when you confront the Sar Shalesov, you don't give in slightest, you you, you concede nothing, even the Pachim Ketanim. And the Charka Rebbe's like this, that's a good word. <laughs> I should use that, you know, because Maza used to give a Torah. We, he was an excellent speaker. You know, he was an excellent speaker, excellent writer too. And what happened, by the way, was that uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe at that time, Dorshab, said, you know, uh, I will do. I forget exactly all the details, but he said something like, "I will provide a full staff to get you as many." Uh, citations from uh, Shas and Postkim and everywhere that are like pro-Goy, you know what I mean? That that sort of thing. Or show how Judaism is not in favor of hurting people and things like that. And, uh, you know, so he cooperated. The Rebbe's behind the back cooperated with, with, with... I mean, there's nothing wrong with what I'm saying, you know? In other words, you're allowed to do that. Uh, so he was aided by the different religious groups, but he hit the home run himself. Now, the end was... After a year or so of a trial, I remember how long it was, the jury, which is a bunch of Ukrainian peasants, they said like this, we can't say it's a verdict of guilty because it's not the evidence. We know he did it. We can look on his face, that Jewish face, we can tell he did it. But unfortunately, you know, the prosecution has not produced the evidence. So, so far, we cannot say guilty. We, we, we have to say non-guilty. <laughs> and the government was so angry and embarrassed the Tsar of Russia said, we're going to retry the case. We're going to nail that Jewish son of a gun. And then the World War II, uh, World War One broke out. And the Tsar of Russia and Mamzer said, I guess, when the war's over, then we'll retry the case and we'll hang that Jewish guy. Well, guess what? The war ended. Uh, the war went four years. The Tsar and his whole family were shot in a basement. They never got to do it. You understand? The communists took over. And the communists didn't go after Bayless because they, they didn't believe he was guilty, of course. So it was a weird uh, situation. That means that the Jews in Russia found themselves in World War One, having to fight for the Tsar against the, the Germans and the Austrians. That means you have to be a patriotic Russian. Who the heck wants to be a patriotic Russian if you're in Russia? You know, they used to have to say the prayer for the Medina, for the prayer for the Tsar, all the rest of it. But, anyway, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, they had the joke, may God bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. But it's not a joke. They had to say these things in Russia. But do you honestly think that they were pro-Russian, and yet 
The Jews were drafted. They had to fight in the Russian army. How many of them were killed fighting for Tsar Nicholas? It's disgusting. You understand? And meanwhile, during the war, the Russian army perpetrated pogroms, rapes, pillages on their own Jews, meaning on Jews of the Russian Empire. The day the war started, they said the whole Kovna and Slobodka have to go into exile because they're too near the front line. We don't trust the Jews here. They made a terrible time for the Jews in Russia. I'll say it again. Their own government did it to them. I have a series on uh, in my YouTube channel I did a couple years ago, Warsaw Judies in First World War. You can see all the junk that the Russian government did there. And here's our hero, the chief rabbi of Moscow. And he has to always make the case that Jews are patriotic. He goes to see the Tsar. The Jews do love you. Um, here's the money they raised for the Russian Red Cross. And the Tsar basically says, all right, I'll take the money, but the heck with the Jews. Wish they're all dead. This is the guy I'm supposed to be in favor of. You know, uh, Nicholas II, the Tsar, was a particularly stupid, idiotic ruler. Now, that's not a statement on my part. I mean, you can read in the history books. It's well known. And his wife was worse. Um, and they were involved with Rasputin. Rasputin was the mad monk who actually was a friend of the Jews. <laughs> People don't know that. But the Tsar and his wife were bad news from A to Z. There was nothing, nothing, no redeeming qualities in them. <clears throat> right? Which is why they and the whole family were shot. Uh, in a basement, like I say, shot to death. So uh, that meant that our hero had to go through the four years of the First World War, you know, trying to help a Jew who was arrested over here and trying to help somebody over there. A lot of times it didn't happen because the Russians, you know, it works in Russia. First they arrest you, then they shoot you, and then you're found guilty. You know, so this is the, the court martials and things like this. Again, if you're interested, you can look in the, in my opinion, I would say, to you, the average reader is listening to this uh, podcast. Get that art scroll, uh, old uh, biography of the Chavetz Chaim back from the 80s, I guess, where they translator of uh, Yashar's. That was pretty good in, in conveying the atmosphere that was going on in the Russian Empire during the First World War. It was really tough. Then the communists took over, and then Yiddishkeit was doomed. And our hero spent the last five, six, seven years of his life living under the Soviets. In the very beginning, the Soviets had a little bit of busha. He was able to play on that. And, um, you know, uh, what shall I say? He worked with Lunacharsky and some of the other big Soviet guys, Gorky, who were a little more liberal, towards Yiddishkeit. And in the very, very beginning years, they were able to get some concessions. But then he died, like, in the early 20s. And as the regime progressed under Stalin, you know, they uh, snuffed out any bit of liberalism whatsoever vis-a-vis the Jewish religion and, you know, crushed it all. I think you know that. Whatever survived under Stalin went underground. And even then had a heck of a time. Okay? So he didn't have a happy end. He had a, a difficult end. Uh, he wasn't that old either. He was in his 60s. He was born in 1858. Dies earlier. So, you know, it's, it's mid-60s. Uh, <clears throat> so this is this is the, uh, the, the, the time. Now, we wouldn't know much about him. I wouldn't either. Except that he wrote four volumes of memoirs. Thin volumes. I don't know how he got it out, but it was published in Tel Aviv many years ago when they had the Hebrew College Library in Baltimore long ago. So I saw it and I started reading him and I was hooked on it. He's a fantastic writer. Now it's in Ivrit, but it's a wonderful Hebrew because he was buddy buddies with Achad Am. That generation knew how to write Hebrew fantastically, in my opinion, much better than the modern Hebrew. And he came from an unbelievably rich environment. He talks about growing up in this firm environment, and with the half the chassidim, half the misnagdim, 
and he was with the Malbim and with others, and then he had all these experiences as a rove over there. He was, uh, like I said before, and as I mentioned several times over here, it, 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 the, the Zionism in those years was Matiris Atamema, Thomas Atarum, really was. And there were many Jews who um, converted to Christian because of careerism and other reasons, and they had pangs of consciousness. And he would have them over his house, and they would confess. And they said, we want to go back to being Jewish. You know, help us doing this. And he had seders uh, that he arranged for Mishamadim to get together and have a, 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 a secretly have a Pesach Seder. It's unbelievable, you know. The book is amazing. And it's written in, in form of little vignettes, four volumes. I was lucky enough to pick it up in Israel many, many years ago. Uh, that was a big piece of luck, and I've had it since. And if you can read Hebrew, and if you can ever give it, get a hold of it, I highly recommend it, because it is uh, one of the best written, in my opinion, one of the best written Hebrew books. And I can't begin to do justice. By the way, he's like Forrest Gump. He met Mitchell Petterberger and Kelmer Magid and all these, and Berlisa Gordon. You know, I told you before, the richy rich guys that he dealt with, on the one hand, bankrolled the Hanam and all the Kfira. On the other hand, they also bankrolled the Tells of Yeshiva. And he has over there a whole chapter, Haim Herzl Manech Tfilin. Does Herzl Weil Tfilin? You know, they're discussing this with Blazer tells her, who came to the spa where these richy rich guys were hanging out because he had to raise money for the yeshiva. This is how the yeshivas existed prior to the First World War. They didn't come to America like later on you saw, you know, Punavish and people like, hey, go to America, to England, South Africa, raising money. Uh, they went to Russia because you could go to Moscow and St. Petersburg and there you had millionaires and you could get a little off of them and 100,000 here, 100,000 here, 100,000 there, you got some money. I don't know how Tells was unusually successful with these guys. I'm not exactly 100% sure why. But I know that some of the richest Jews in Russia, I'll tell you something weird. Their children went to Russian elite schools with the uniform and all the rest of it. And in the, um, what's the right term? Ben Asmanim, you know what I mean. In the, in, in the time of the Christmas vacation and that sort of thing, whenever they had their uh, month off from public school, they went to tells. <laughs> there are people who say they saw them learning there, you know. Now that doesn't mean they came from me, from me, but they wanted their children, you know, to be both, because I think they really were looking if they could find it for the right type of Torah, Mata, Torah and Terecheres, Torah and culture and Tarbus, whatever you want to call it. Um, never quite worked out in Russia, as you know, but it was a fascinating era, and he was always pushing Zionism. I would say mainly to get to those who were um, unfrom and were assimilated and converted. And he did a fair job in bringing many of these people back to Judaism openly or secretly. Some of them were already married. It was a real tragedy in their life. He, Oh, he has so many stories. I mean, I can't begin to tell you. Um, and he dealt with the Grand Dukes who were the governors of Moscow. And there was one guy, I wrote this up in a story once in, in my book, uh, who wouldn't let the soldiers you know, have matzah on the, in the garrison, have matzah on Pesach, and then, and then the Grand Duke dropped dead during the parade. I was, oh, oh boy, it's a whole, it's a ganze geschichte. Uh, it's really diamonds, in my opinion. You see how I'm speaking about it. I'm looking at a chapter, I wish I had the time to read it, it would take too long. He has a, a chapter of a couple of pages 
that he's in a train called Yehudim B'Goyim Barakhevet, Jews and Goyim in a uh, in a train car, because he knew the Russian character. Uh, you know, he understood the Russians better than all of them, because he had that education among them. And he knew the good ones and the bad ones. And I want to tell you something. He was so impressive that even the head of the... Uh, the Black Hundreds, I would call that the Nazi Party of Russia, you know, the proto-Nazi Party of Russia, uh, showed him respect. Because he, you see, is, with certain Goyim, if you approach it in the right way, you can get to them. It's, but it's not easy to do. And most Jews don't know how to do it, but he did. And I'm only scratching the surface of this. Um, so Rafi and the others who ever listen to this, this is a, a book you want to look up. If they have it in the local university library or something like that, called Zichronus or Rav Maza. It's a four volumes. It's thin. Four thin volumes. And they're really <clears throat> fantastic. And he's got this thing that he's in 18... Hebrew is wonderful. Bishnas Tarnav, he says he was in a train, and, you know, he was dressed not like a rabbi. He's dressed like a European gentleman. On the other hand, he kind of looked Jewish. And there's a bunch of Russians uh, sitting across let's say, in the next compartment in the train, and they're cursing at the Jews, but they're trying to figure, and they're cussing at the Jews, and he's not reacting. Have you ever found yourself in this situation? He's pretending like he doesn't understand them, and they're talking in Russian. Does he understand us? Is he Jewish? Is he a German? Is he Armenian? And they try to lure him into conversation. He won't do it. And meanwhile, across the way, you're sitting a bunch of Polish, Yidin, like Hasidish style, who were businessmen going to... Uh, to Moscow in business, they got a special permit, but they're really from Warsaw and Lodge, and they can tell the guy to go straight to hell, you know, they don't get a bunch of Hasidim, and the Russians are cursing them out, and they're cursing the Russians back out, in Russia, they're cursing the Russians back out, and he's got it in wonderful Hebrew, you know, look how look how well the Jews are, we hate them, and the Jews say, you think you, you hate us? I guess what, I hate you double, you know, like that, and he curses out the Jewish religion, You've been hated from day one, and he curses out the Christian religion, and uh, oh my goodness, it's I, I, like I said, I can't unless I I sat with you for forty five minutes and and read and translated word for word, maybe an hour, um, you, you wouldn't get it. And it's written in such a wonderful style. So if you want to have an angle of vision to understand Russian Jewish history in a way that you won't get anywhere else. The from and the not from. He has his like he has his debates with Mitzel Petterberger when he comes to a to a, to a see him a shas in uh, in a shul in in Moscow. Oh boy, uh, they have an argument over what's the meaning of kafel market gigas. I tell you, it's it's <laughs> it's just remarkable, uh, and it's a real jewel. It's a shame this is never translated again, or I, I mean never reprinted. It was published in Tufrish Tzadi Vav in Tel Aviv by Yalkut. I don't think it even exists anymore. Uh, maybe somebody is, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody has put this online. That would be a public service. Because he's so Jewish, and even though he's very modernish, he's so saturated in Yiddishkeit that it comes out in every line, the, the, the very rich Jewish culture, and the Hebrew he uses is just really wonderful. I, ca I can't speak highly enough of it. And uh, you, you really get, uh, how shall I say it, uh, aside of uh, the Ru what it, what it was like to live in Russia, and under the fear, and the police always coming to check if they have papers, and the Kehilla, oh, and one one thing after another. Uh, now he died. He had kids, and I think they got out of Russia. 
And I remember reading in um, the Chaim Shapiro book, Go My Son, that he's, he's, he ran into a guy in the Nuremberg trial, maybe, if I'm going by memory, haven't read the book in decades. And uh, Chaim Shapiro was a friend of mine. And um, one of the people who was translating there for the CIA was Maza, and he said he's like the son, if I remember correctly, he was the son or grandson of Rabbi Maza. Uh, they, but I don't know what happened to him. Now, my friend Jonathan Gross, Rabbi John Gross, tells me he's related, that Jackie Mason and the Mazas here are related to uh, to Maza, who was the rabbi in Moscow. Could be, Kenzine. Um In which case, you know, uh, in other words, Jonathan's mom would be a Maza, you know, the, uh, and, and but that's the American Mazas. But according to this, this, this they're, they're all related. And um, the result was... Uh, that he left, uh, 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 what should I say, a light footprint, as I said before. He should be better known than he is. He's mainly known for the Bayless trial, which is very important. And like I said before, he hit a home run when a home run needed to be hit. He defended the Jewish religion, and the Hasidim especially, when it needed to be done. And he's the only guy that could do it his way, because he was a ruski-ruski. He had the education and the background and all the rest of it. And it was 100% a Yiddish Yid, 200%. But there's a lot more to him than just the, the Bela story, even though that's very, very important. And the memoirs, in my opinion, are his legacy, but it doesn't do any good if you don't read them. Anybody with yeshiva education, I think, could probably understand his Hebrew. It's so wonderful. It's so limpid. But uh, but you got to read it to, to, to get it. There's no way I could do any justice to it. But it's really one of the treasures, literary treasures, of 20th century Jewish uh, literature. I, I say that without any hesitation. So, um, with that, if I've whetted your appetite, you'll make it your business to try to get a hold of this book. You, you'll, you'll be very happy that you did. Um, you'll be very happy that you did. And with that, I want to once again thank the Davidovich family and especially pay tribute to Mark Messing. Today was, the, as I said before, he lived next door to my uh, sister-in-law and uh, was a very wonderful person who is missed. And uh, with that, I want to wish everybody once again a good day and, as they say, good luck in your preparations for Pesach. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot rabbi david katz dot com